So let's get into our Bible prophecy section. You might remember that this is the final week of a five-part series where we're looking at uh, prophecies about the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. And uh, the things that we've covered so far are that Christ is going to return, there's going to be a resurrection of the dead, and then a judgment. And uh, finally, last week, we looked at the battle of Armageddon, how God is going to judge the nations, and through that battle, start to give over the, the control of the earth to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And tonight, we're going to look at the topic of the millennium. And the millennium is really the, the culminating event in God's plan, uh, a period of time where the earth will start to live up to the potential that God saw for men and women when he created them. Uh, there's going to be an age when the earth will truly be filled with the glory of God. And the basic meaning of the word millennium is, is a time period. It's a time period of 1,000 years. So, for example, since 2001, we've been living in the third millennium of the modern era. And for you and I, a thousand years sounds like uh, an impossibility. You know, it's almost impossible to wrap your head around that long of a, of a period. There was actually a man in the Bible who almost lived a thousand years, and that was Methuselah. And in Genesis 5, we're told that he lived for 969 years. So imagine an opportunity to live for that long in the kingdom of God. And uh, there's a verse that I really like in 2 Peter chapter 3 that talks about this, this time period from God's perspective. It says, One day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. And uh, this verse really puts time in perspective. Uh, from God's point of view, a thousand years isn't that long of a period, it's kind of like a day. And of course, that makes sense because God has no beginning. He has no end. He's from everlasting to everlasting. And for Bible students, especially Bible students of prophecy, this is an important verse too. It's a, it's a key to interpreting a Bible prophecy and more on that in a minute. But I think most importantly, it helps us understand the time scale in which God works. So we may feel that the return of Christ and the resurrection are, are, are just never going to happen. People have been talking about it for years, for generations. Uh, perhaps you've been waiting for it most of your life. Uh, but God has a plan, and it fits according to his, his time scale. And I, and I think it's worth looking at this verse in its whole context in, in, in the book of Peter. And so here's the verse from our opening slide in its context. And we see that Peter is making this exact point. He's talking about the fact that uh, a thousand years is is not such a big thing and so because of that god is not slack concerning his promise so as we're looking for christ's return and we think why is it taking so long it's not that god isn't keeping his promise uh, he's not like a man who says something and doesn't fulfill his word even if it looks like god has forgotten he he hasn't and peter says to us that god is waiting look what it says there um, but his long suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So Peter even tells us why God is waiting, because he's patient, he's loving. He's giving more people an opportunity to respond to his promise. He doesn't want any to perish. 
and he's providing time for others to repent and, and turn to him. So even though it may feel like Christ should have returned, you know, 25 years ago or 40 years ago, God is patiently waiting so that more people will have the opportunity to respond. But Peter tells us one more thing in this, in this section. He says, um, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And that's what it says there in verse 10. And so for some people, the return of Christ is going to catch them off guard. And we need to be, to be watching. But the other point that was interesting in this section is this concept of a day for a thousand years. And uh, with that in mind, there's a very interesting prophecy about the return of Christ in Genesis chapter 1, and it's in the days of creation. And we could go to Genesis, but there's a, a great summary of the days of creation in the book of Exodus. Look what it says here in Exodus chapter 20. It says, for in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And that's the basis of um, the Sabbath day of rest that is kept every seven days. But you see, in the creation, there was six days of preparation. And then there was one day that was the culmination of God's work where he rested. And uh, if you follow this principle through, where a day is like a thousand years, you get the idea of God having 6,000 years of preparation and then a 1,000 year period of rest. And, and that's the idea of the millennium. And that seventh day is called a day of rest for a reason, because look at what it says here in Hebrews chapter four. And uh, you can see here a, a reference to Joshua who lived after Moses. And this is after they were wandering for 40 years in the wilderness and Joshua brings them into the land that God promised them. And really, when you look at the history, they didn't have the rest that they were expecting when they got into the land of Canaan, the Israelites. It says if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What he's saying is when they entered the land, the land wasn't resting like God intended. And the point is, is that there's going to be a time when the land will rest in the future. It's going to rest from sin. It's going to rest from violence. It's going to rest from wickedness. And there's going to be a period of rest that lasts a, a thousand years. And you can see the exhortation here in, in Hebrews chapter four. Let us strive to enter into that rest. That's what we're living our lives for so that we can enter into that 1,000 period of rest. And if you were to put this in a pictorial form, you'd look at how the seven days of creation point forward to 7,000 years of history. So there's Genesis chapter 1, about 4,000 years before the time of Christ. We live about 2,000 years after Christ, which represents the six days of, of creation, and on the seventh day, God rested, and there's a rest for those that are searching for it. And you can even place yourself here on this timeline that we're here just waiting for that 1,000-year rest for the land uh, to come. And it's an amazing uh, prophecy that speaks about the millennium. But I thought that was a good introduction to this 1,000-year period that's going to be established here on the earth. And uh, the question really is, well, what is it going to be like? And we just have time for a few passages, but once you have your eyes open to them and you look in the scriptures, you'll, you'll notice that the Bible is, is full of passages about the kingdom of God. 
Now you'll notice as we go through that the, the three main passages that I've chosen are all from the book of Isaiah. And it's a, a wonderful book that's full of pictures of the kingdom of God. And you can see here in Isaiah uh, 65 that it talks about God creating a new period on the earth. Look what it says. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former shall not be remembered nor come into mind, but be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. And, and what's being spoken here is of a future age. Now it says a new heavens and a new earth, but that's not literally a new planet. Um, you can tell that because it's talking about Jerusalem still and God's people. Uh, but this is a change in character for the earth. It's, it's going to be different. Uh, it's kind of like the flood changed the world in the days of Noah. After the flood, the world was like a new creation. And uh, there's going to be changes. And there's a list that we can start to develop of what the characteristics of the millennium will be like. So as we mentioned, there's going to be a new world order. Um, when I've told others that, I, that my belief is that, that I want to live forever on earth, that God's going to set up a kingdom and that I want to be there, and sometimes they've looked at me, people have, and, and said, why would you want to live forever on the earth? And, and they're thinking of a world with crime and pollution, with and disease. They're thinking of the fact that, you know, as we get older, we become feeble, we, we get sick and we face very great difficulties. But the first point is, is that this world is gonna be a completely different place. And you can start to see it come out here in, in this passage. Um, the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, in, in Jerusalem, in this new world. And you could, you could highlight there in your Bible, the gladness and the rejoicing and the joy, all the words associated with, with happiness. There's going to be a wonderful change to the character of this world. And, and this idea is backed up in other verses. This one's from Isaiah 35, where it talks about the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion. That's a, a word for Jerusalem with songs, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall, shall flee away. All those things that we deal with and, and, and struggle with are going to be taken away from the world. Now, if you continue in Isaiah 65, just on to the next verse in, in chapter 20, we're told that there'll be an extension of life given to people. Look at that, that highlighted section there. The child shall die a hundred years old. Now, of course, some people are going to be immortal in the kingdom. They're, they're not going to die at all. Uh, you can think of those that have been resurrected and judged worthy. Uh, God said that they were going to give, be given eternal life. And this verse in Revelation is a wonderful verse that talks about the fact that there will be healing for the nations, that uh, there will be a change that takes place such that we are able to live a life without the diseases that we suffer through now. Well, if we continue on in Isaiah chapter 65, uh, in our next verse, uh, we come up with a section that might be a little more difficult to discern what's being spoken of here. It says, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. 
And, and what I labeled that was that this is the end of oppression and, and poverty. There's a lot of inequity in the world today. There's great riches for some people and there's extreme poverty for others. There's, there's racism, there's oppression. And what the scriptures describe is that these things will be done away with. And we might wonder how, and we're going to get that to that in a minute. But the last thing that comes up here in Isaiah chapter 65 is this idea of that they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. You might remember this verse. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock. And, and this is the verse where you get those pictures of a, a lion lying down with a lamb, and you've got a wolf in here too. So there's, there's not going to be any more violence or, or war. And isn't that a wonderful picture of the age? And that's my answer to people who say, why would you want to live forever on the earth? Well, we have this wonderful blessing to us. Now, you may remember in our webinars that this slide has come up a few times. We try to answer the, the who, the what, the where, the when, the why, and the how of Bible scriptures. And if, if we had time, we'd, we'd list these all out. But I think in the last few weeks, we've, we've answered most of these questions. But when it comes to the millennium, there's one question that totally jumps out at me. And you think, how is this all going to happen? It just seems impossible. When you think about the state of the world today, how can such an unlikely transformation happen? Well, the answer is that it has to do with Jesus Christ and his return. And so what we're told in Isaiah 9 is that it has to do with the birth of a child. And of course, that child was the Lord Jesus Christ. But see what Jesus is going to do. He's going to be called um, Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And those are titles of a ruler. And you can see there that the government is going to be upon his shoulder. In order to change the world, what we really need is a righteous ruler. And if you continue on in Isaiah 9, we also need righteous laws and righteous rules. And so you can see here this idea of, of the kingdom. There's going to be a government. There's going to be peace. He's going to sit upon the throne of David, and he's going to set up a new order on the earth. And it's going to be an order based with judgment and justice. And God says, I'm going to make this happen. And that's how God is going to change the world. And it's going to start in Jerusalem. And uh, this is a verse from Jeremiah chapter 3 talking about the throne. Of course, it's the throne of David. It's going to be established in Jerusalem. And you can see that the nations are actually going to, to come up to Jerusalem. They're going to hear about the name of, of God. And they're not going to walk after their own ways anymore, after the imagination of their evil heart. And then the kingdom's going to spread out, and it's going to be established in the land of Israel. Jesus said to his 12 disciples, that you can sit on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And eventually that's going to go out into all the earth. And, and, and Jesus is going to be the king of the whole earth. And all people are going to worship God. And that's how this world is going to change. It's going to take a bit of time, but we're going to usher in a period of peace upon the earth. Well, Isaiah 2 tells us that there's another aspect to establishing this change in, in the world, and it's the establishment of a house of worship. So we've got a ruler, we've got righteous rules, we've got rulers that rule with Jesus Christ, 
but we're also going to have priests who teach the people of the will of God. And so there's going to be a temple that's established in Jerusalem. And the nations are going to come up to worship God at the temple. Look at what it says here in verse 3 of Isaiah 2. Many people shall, shall go and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion or out of Jerusalem shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So those are the things that are going to establish the millennium on earth. And we're looking forward to that day and we're praying that it will be accomplished very soon. And if you continue in studying the scriptures, then you have the opportunity to be part of that. All right, David, uh, I think I made it through without losing connection again. And we'll let you uh, take it from there. Very good. Thanks, Dan. Can you uh, confirm you can see my screen now? Yeah, you're looking good. I'll, I'll turn myself off here. Excellent. Well, I wonder if any of you have ever had somebody say to you that it's a mystery when you ask them questions about the Bible. I know I experienced this when I was a teenager quite a few years ago. I was asking uh, at a Christian school that I attended, I was asking my Bible studies teacher some questions, and he answered the question. I asked another, and then a third. When I got to my third question, my Bible studies teacher put his arm around my shoulder and told me that it was a mystery. We've covered a number of subjects over the last 16 weeks. Perhaps you've had an opportunity to talk with friends or maybe even your pastor or priest about some of the topics that we've covered. And maybe even in the last four months, you've heard someone say to you, it's a mystery. Well, our plan this evening is to work together to see what the Bible says about mysteries. We've called this a workshop. And if we were all together in one room, well, we would uh, bring up the computer program. Kevin spoke to us about some tools that we can use in our computer in the past. We would bring up a computer program and we would run this live. But uh, in this format, we've just captured for you the results of a search of the word mystery or mysteries in the Bible. When you look at this graph, the blue lines represent the number of times the word mystery or mysteries appears in each of those books of the Bible. Now, the, the names are shortened. So MT stands for Matthew, MK Mark. L.K. Luke, and so on. One of the things that strikes you, no doubt, as you look at this chart, is you may ask, well, did you run the search in the Old Testament as well? Because all of the books that are listed there, from Matthew to Revelation, are found in the New Testament. And the answer is yes. So what we find out then in our workshop on mysteries in the Bible is that only the New Testament has the word mystery or mysteries. Well, let's delve into this and take a look at what the Bible teaches us about these mysteries. I've provided a full list of the verses in the New Testament, or actually in the whole of the Bible, that talk to us about a mystery or mysteries. Not because we're going to go through every one of these together this evening, or that I expect you to read every one on the screen, but this presentation is available, as you know, as a download and so you can refer to and look up all of these verses 
on your own to see what the Bible teaches about mysteries. So first we're going to look at mystery in the Gospels. If you look back at our previous screen, you'll see that in each one of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's one occurrence of the word mystery. Now I've got a quote there that is actually a combination of that one verse that's recorded in each of the Gospels. And what we see is we're told in this, it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Now, one of the passages says the kingdom of God. So when we see this verse, and this is the verse that's found in all, all three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would ask, well, who is it given to? Who was speaking? And who offered to give uh, this knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven? And what are the mysteries of the kingdom? Back to those questions that we saw Dan look at earlier. Now, if you've got a Bible in front of you, I'd ask you to open it to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. We're going to read together verses 10 to 13. And we could read from Mark or Luke, because essentially the record is very similar in each one of the Gospels. So looking at Matthew chapter 13 at verse 10, Jesus has just told a parable about a sower, a parable that we looked at together in one of our previous sessions when Ron spoke. And the disciples come to Jesus afterwards and say unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Well, we've answered our first two questions now, haven't we? Who is it given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus' followers, his disciples, those who had invested time to understand the gospel of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And who was going to give this knowledge, was going to reveal this mystery? Well, it's Jesus who is speaking in, in Matthew chapter 13. And he continues at verse 12, For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because seeing they see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. We might read those verses and think, well, that seems a little bit unfair. Why is it that those who have would be given more, and those who don't have would have that which they had already taken away? And it has to do with the statement we've got on the screen there. The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, are given to those who have because they've invested time to understand the gospel of the kingdom, because they cherish the word of God. And what are the mysteries of the kingdom? Well, we're told in this passage and in Mark and Luke that the mysteries of the kingdom are taught in the parables. So the Lord Jesus Christ taught the mysteries of the kingdom through his parables and through his teaching as recorded in the four gospels. And so we're not going to go through what all of those teachings are about the mysteries of the kingdom tonight. We've already done that in previous seminar sessions. 
But what we do understand from this passage is that, well, once something, once a mystery has been revealed, it's no longer a mystery, is it? Jesus' teaching has revealed the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. So if you ask a question about the kingdom and somebody says, well, it's a mystery, Jesus has actually revealed to us what those mysteries are. So no, in fact, it is not a mystery. We can go to the gospel records and we can uncover the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And so the mystery that's spoken of in the gospels, well, they're no longer a mystery. They've been revealed to us. Well, let's take a look at the word mystery or mysteries in Paul's epistles, starting in Romans and ending in Timothy. What we see when we look at these passages is that Paul says something very similar to what we've already observed in the gospel messages. Take a look at what it says in Romans 16, verses 25 to 26. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but is now made manifest or now made known, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. So Paul is saying that his preaching, which was the preaching of the gospel, was based on the revealing of the mystery. So Paul was preaching that which Jesus revealed in the gospels about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. So not only can we learn about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven in the gospel record, but now we can see we can learn about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven in Paul's epistles as well. We're told that it was kept secret since the world began. So there were elements about the teaching concerning the kingdom of God that were not made known until the Lord Jesus Christ came, and as it were, filled out the picture for us about the kingdom of heaven. And we've highlighted there that this mystery of the kingdom of heaven has been revealed. Although it was kept secret in Old Testament times, it has now been made known. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians, in his letter to the church at Corinth, Paul says that we have been made stewards or caretakers of the mysteries of God. So not only have they been revealed, but if we want to be followers of Christ, we need to delve in and understand what those mysteries are because we're now caretakers. We have a responsibility to reveal to others what those mysteries of God are. We've just looked at the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. We're going to see a few more mysteries as we progress through the Paul's epistles. He says the same thing in Ephesians 6, verses 19 and 20, to the church that was at Ephesus. He says, I want to open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. And he says there even, I am an ambassador of the mystery of the gospel. He was a representative of God and of Jesus in so much that he taught and made known the mysteries of the gospel of the kingdom. And in Colossians 4, he asks the church there to pray for him, 
that God would open unto them a door of utterance, an opportunity to preach, to speak the mystery of Christ. So again, Paul speaks about the mystery in his letters in the New Testament as being something that's been revealed and something that we have a responsibility to share with others. So let's see what Paul says are mysteries. We've got five listed on the screen before us. Again, back in his letter to Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 15, at verse 51, we see, I show you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now, Dan just spoke to us about the time period in the kingdom called the millennium, a thousand-year period. And what we know from previous sessions as well is that during that time, those who have been followers of Christ will be given a reward. We talked about the judgment and about being rewarded according to our works, whether they be good or whether they be bad. And in this case, Paul speaking to followers of Jesus Christ says, I show you a mystery. He said he wanted to speak about mysteries, and here he is speaking to the ecclesia at Corinth, this mystery, we shall not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed. So those who are following Christ, they may not die and be resurrected, but they will be changed from mortal to immortal. And if you read the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, you'll see that's the entire context of that chapter is about the resurrection from the dead. And Paul is saying not only those who are raised have the opportunity to be made immortal, but even those who are alive when Jesus Christ returns to the earth can be made immortal. So that's one mystery, and the mystery solved. It's been revealed. Back to the letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul says in chapter 1 and chapter 3, he speaks of this mystery as well. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, that he might gather together in one all things in Christ. That's taken from the first chapter in, 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 in the letter to the Ephesians, uh, verses 9 and 10. And he continues in chapter 3, verse 6, explaining what it means that all things will be made one in Christ, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his, pro in, of his promise in Christ by the gospel. And so Paul is saying is there was a mystery in the days of old, in the time of the Old Testament, that the Gentiles, too, could partake of salvation and could be partakers of the promises that were made in Christ by the gospel. This was indeed a mystery in the Old Testament, and that's what it was speaking about in the previous slide that we looked at in Romans, where it said that these things were a secret in times of old. Now, they weren't that much of a secret. If you were a Bible student living in the time of the Old Testament, you very well could have discovered that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs with the Jews of the promises of Christ and able to partake of the kingdom of God. But it was a mystery to those that Paul was preaching to in the first century. And it's been revealed. So no longer is this a mystery. We now know that Jew and Gentile can both be in the kingdom of God. In the same letter in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul speaks of a great mystery Toward the end of that chapter, there's a, a lovely section of verses 
about marriage and about a husband and wife and how they ought to treat one another. And at the end there, Jesus, or Paul, sorry, quotes from Genesis chapter 2. And he says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And then he continues, says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church, or the ecclesia, the called out ones. And so Paul is telling us, that just as a man and a woman marry, so the Lord Jesus Christ will be married to his church, to his believers, to those who are his followers. And that will take place in the time of the kingdom. Now, in the second letter to the Ecclesia at Thessalonica, Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 7, about a mystery of iniquity which was already working in his day. Now, it takes some digging for us to look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, to understand what that mystery of iniquity is. But we're going to see that Revelation also reveals a mystery of iniquity and really answers the question for us about what that mystery is spoken in that second letter to Thessalonica. And the last letter then we have is 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, where Paul says, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Well, in whose flesh was God manifest? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was justified in the spirit, even as the spirit descended upon him in the shape of a dove at his baptism and declared that he was the son of God. He was seen of angels. He, was, he preached to the Gentiles. He was believed on in the world, and he sits now at the right hand of his heavenly Father, waiting to come back and establish the kingdom of God on earth. Some of those mysteries that are revealed in the gospel message and in the teachings of Paul. So what we see then when we look at Paul's epistles is that we had five mysteries that were defined for us, and we'll come back to those in a few minutes. And of those five, we saw readily that four of those mysteries were revealed. Well, our last section of the scriptures that we'll look at this word mysteries is in the book of Revelation called the Apocalypse. And we see three times in the book of Revelation the word mystery appears. The first time is in the first chapter where Jesus, as he reveals this prophecy to his believers, speaks of the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw at my right hand, speaking about John, who was seeing this vision and hearing these words of prophecy. So there's a mystery of the seven stars, which were in the hand, right hand of Jesus, and the seven golden candlesticks. But the, the passage doesn't end there. He continues, the seven stars are the angels, or that's in the Greek, messengers, of the seven churches. And the seven golden candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So right away, we have a mystery presented to us, seven stars in the right hand of Jesus, and seven golden candlesticks, and immediately there's a revealing of that mystery. The seven stars in the right hand of Jesus were the messengers of the seven churches. And the seven golden candlesticks which he saw 
were the seven churches or seven ecclesias. And lo and behold, when you continue on reading in Revelation, the very next chapter, just a couple of verses away, are seven letters written to the representatives of seven churches in Asia, which were to be read amongst all of those churches. And so right away, we have a mystery presented and a revealing of the mystery. Well, the next one there is found in Revelation 10, verse 7. It says, In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God shall be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. Well, this mystery was actually declared in the Old Testament through his servants the prophets. And this is speaking about the establishment of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. The same mystery that was spoken of in the Gospels that we considered at the beginning of our session together. And now we come to the final mystery, a mystery which is bewildering to John as he sees it in a vision. And it'd be good for you to look at Revelation 17, read the whole chapter. But we're, we're quoting there just a couple of verses where we read in the first portion of Revelation 17, upon her forehead was a name written, and the her is a harlot that John sees in this vision. And upon the forehead of this harlot is written, mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots, and abominations of the earth. Again, we're told something's a mystery, and immediately it's revealed. This harlot was Babylon the great, the mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth. Now, this harlot, as you trace her through the book of Revelation, you'll find that in earlier chapters, she declares herself to be a virgin, to be the wife of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what we looked at in Ephesians chapter 5, that just as a man and a woman are married, so Jesus will be married to his church. This system in Revelation 17 declares itself to be the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we're told that in fact, it is the mother of harlots and of abominations of the earth. And as you go through the Old and the New Testament, you find that this language is used to describe people that have gone away from the teachings of the Bible. And would we not call this a mystery of iniquity? I remember what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that the mystery of iniquity was already working in Paul's day, 2,000 years ago. So this church has its foundation 2,000 years ago. Well, Revelation speaks of two mysteries, and it reveals two mysteries, plus it gives us insight into the one mystery that remained from Paul's epistle. And of course, had we taken the time to delve into that fifth mystery in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it would no longer be a mystery. We just didn't have time this evening, and Revelation chapter 17 revealed it nicely for us. And so we have five mysteries we've looked at tonight, the only five mysteries that are spoken about in the Bible. The first is that we will be made immortal when Jesus Christ returns if we have obediently followed him. The second mystery is that Gentiles, along with the Jews, are included in God's plan of salvation. The third mystery is that Jesus Christ and the Ecclesia will be married in the kingdom, not those who claim to be 
the bride of Christ, but have gone away from the teachings of the Bible and introduced their own teachings. But those who have stayed true to the word of God, they will be married with the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom. The fourth mystery is that the mystery of iniquity existed in Paul's day. It is called the harlot of Revelation, Babylon the Great. It is a false bride of Christ that had its roots all the way back in Paul's day. And the fifth mystery is that God was manifest in the flesh of Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose again and now sits at his Father's right hand, waiting to come back to be married to all those who obediently follow him. And so we can see the Bible does speak about mysteries in the New Testament, but all those mysteries have been revealed. So the next time somebody says to you that it's a mystery, what that really means is that they just haven't spent enough time researching the answer, because the answer, my friends, is going to be found in the Bible. Well, next week, as we continue with the seminars, the Bible prophecy section will be on the theme of a seed, and that will continue for a few weeks. And I'll be continuing in the Bible reading portion of the seminar on the topic, The Purpose of God Revealed. Just a reminder that you can ask questions in the chat, and there's a variety of other ways that you can get in touch with us if you want to ask us a question later. And a reminder also, these recordings are made available through the website. 